The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello, Happy New Year, and you're very welcome to the first Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times of 2022. I'm Pat Leahy, sitting in for Hugh Linehan this morning, as we look ahead to some of the trends and events that are likely to loom large in our coverage of politics throughout the year. To discuss the year ahead, I'm joined by two of our occasional contributors. Ed Brophy is a former Chief of Staff to Tonish to Joan Burton, and a former Chief Advisor to Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue. He's currently the principal of Tyrconnell Strategy. Kevin Cunningham is a political scientist at TU Dublin and a pollster who heads up Ireland Thinks. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome. Ed, we'll discuss the prospects for the coalition government shortly. But first, do you think COVID will overshadow everything again this year or how long will it continue to do so? Uh, I wish I knew and I don't, I don't know, but I think the f- potential for it to overshadow things is possibly underrated uh, by the political system and by people in general. Uh, if you look at the way things have developed um, in recent months, I think at the end of the summer, uh, the country had gotten into a reasonably good position. And I think the kind of conventional wisdom uh, was uh, around politics that COVID would kind of recede into the background a little bit and it would be something that would be there but it wouldn't constitute the main kind of event uh, for political debate and discussion and controversy uh, into the autumn and into 2022. Um, and when you look at what's happened, you know, the exact opposite has happened. We have had this new, I can't remember where it's fourth or fifth wave, perhaps fifth wave of Omicron, which, uh, albeit that it has different uh, characteristics uh, and doesn't appear to be having an impact uh, on hospitalizations as much as previous waves, it has still led to considerable restrictions uh, and uh, impacts on social and economic life. It's going to cost the government a lot of money uh, and it has caused a lot of unhappiness uh, among kind of uh, the public and, uh, you know, stakeholders uh, in the economy. So it has had a big impact and it's still there uh, and it may run its course. Um, and the conventional wisdom now, uh, replacing the conventional wisdom in the autumn, is that uh, now things will become endemic and we'll see lots more variants, but they will all be uh, similar to Omicron. In other words, more transmissible, but less virulent. Uh, and that'll be fine, and we'll be able to manage them in some kind of a way. But I don't really see, you know, if anyone can say that for for certain. I mean, I don't know how anyone can say that for sure. Uh, it may, that may well be the case, um, but it may well be the case as well. I was writing about this today uh, in another publication um, that uh, essentially, you know, you could have a, a strain that could combine additional transmissibility, like Omicron, but also more virulence. Uh, I mean, that may not happen, but it could, but it could happen. So I think the thing about the uh, pandemic since it started is it has always kind of confounded us. Uh, and every time we thought we were free from it, we, you know, got dragged back into it. So I don't necessarily think that couldn't happen again uh, in 2022. I think the problem uh, with that is uh, that the manner in which the government has operated this and the manner in which all politicians and liberal democracies have uh, communicated this is that, you know, there's been this idea that with one final leap, we'll be free and we'll be back to normal normal, and things will be fine. Uh, this kind of optimism bias that's kind of hardwired in liberal democracies um, continues to kind of come back and bite governments, uh, you know, with the trajectory of the pandemic. And to kind of as proof of that, you only have to look at the New York Times, I think, today, where they have a column uh, talking about the worst, the 10 worst predictions of 2021. 
And I think the number one worst prediction of 2021 is by Leo Varadkar, uh, who, uh, you know, says that the pandemic will be over in 2021. I, I think I think he now says it'll be over in 2022. No? Well, you see, this is the thing, like, you know, that this idea that it will somehow be over at some stage, you know, like kind of a, a football tournament or, you know, something like that, a play or something like that. I just think I just think it's not um, really helpful for the government and it's not very helpful for the public. Because what happens is when you promise people something that is entirely out of your control and then it doesn't happen uh, is is corrosive of trust. Uh, uh, and actually, one of the favorite kind of, you know, lines of the anti-vaxxers now is, you know, they told us vaccines would solve the pandemic. We're all vaccinated. The pandemic isn't solved. Ergo, you know, vaccines don't work or vaccines are you know a problem. So I, I think moving into 2022, um, governments everywhere and the government here, I think has to have a much more realistic accounting with the public on the trajectory of the pandemic. And I think they need to be much more careful uh, about communicating it in terms of, you know, it will be suddenly over. We'll be back to normal. It'll be gone. Um, that kind of thing. Are, are you are, are you talking about on a governmental level living with COVID in a way that it is part of the the daily and weekly management of the state? I think you are. But in, in but in those in in those circumstances, isn't it axiomatic that if we learn to live with COVID and management of various waves to come are part of the work of government, but not the central work of government to the exclusion almost of all else that we saw for the first 18 months or so? Don't other things begin to matter more than uh, as we learn to live with COVID? Well, that depends, I guess, on how competently each wave is managed and how the government manages each wave and gets on top of each wave. But I still think if you look at the kind of, you know, events leading up to um, the more recent, most recent restrictions, it didn't really look to me that the government had a huge handle on it. I mean, you still had the spectre of, you know, ministers being surprised at what Neffel was saying, even though, you know, you know, half an hour on the internet which would show you the trajectory of, of, of Omicron. So I, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, yes, I, obviously if the pandemic is still there, uh, and then if, um, that is a reality, then living with COVID is something, yes, the government has to grapple with, and then it becomes one of the big challenges that has to deal with along with housing and health and everything else. Yeah. But I still think, the problem for the government uh, and other governments as well, it's not just uh, it's not just here, it's elsewhere, is that COVID complete continues to confound their best laid plans uh, and therefore the ability to kind of normalise it or manage it has proven elusive um, and we'll see what happens in 2022. But to date, that's been the case. Kevin, I'll come to you a minute, but Ed, as somebody who, who's worked at a high level in successive governments, then like what is your, if you were still there, what is your... What would your advice to the government be on how they manage that sort of an environment? I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that COVID is a long term issue. Uh, I don't think it's a short term issue. Uh, and then we need to repurpose our systems, uh, whether they're health or, you know, um, various other kind of public services to reflect that. I think I think that 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 will be my advice. So, you know, we should say that we need to build a permanently bigger public health capacity. Um, I would say we need to entirely change, you know, our public realm. Uh, we need to just acknowledge that new patterns of work are here to stay and stop this chat about we'll all be back in the office. Um, you know, we need to get ventilation systems better. We need to improve air quality. Like, I, I just think we need to repurpose our public services to reflect the fact that COVID is something that will be there for a long time. Uh, and inevitably, that's going to cost a lot more money. Uh, and we should therefore have an honest conversation about, you know, paying for that. So that would be my advice uh, at the moment, because I think what will happen is if we continue to, you know, 
get involved in this dance, uh, you know, uh, where we say it's suddenly going to be over and we just go back to the status quo ante. I just think that's going to, you know, lead to public kind of um, distrust in the competence of government and, you know, will be ultimately bad for the government and also bad for society's ability to manage this. So we're not going back to normal anytime soon. Kevin, where, where, where's where's the public uh, on on this from your work as a pollster and your general sense of where the public is? There's loads of published data. And, I mean, you've done stuff, we've done stuff. Department of Health does stuff on a weekly basis, which it publishes. Paint a picture for us of the state of public opinion on, on, on COVID at the moment. It definitely fluctuates quite considerably depending on the level of cases and severity. We've seen that over time. I mean, if you go back to November 2020, there was lots of optimism that was very immediately dashed in December 2020. Uh, At the start of December, which is the most recent data that I have in relation to how people were viewing uh, the restrictions. So it did a poll immediately after the restrictions were announced in early December. And obviously, remember, those those restrictions were, you know, quite small restrictions, really, in, in the grand scheme of things, uh, relative to what had happened before. Um, but there was a substantial minority that were opposed to those restrictions. Um, it was around 30% disagreed with those new measures. And that was particularly strong among younger people. Um, 23% of fact thought NEFIT should be abolished. Uh, and 40% were, weren't concerned at all or even slightly about Omicron. So there was... There's now, I think, a substantial minority, at least, uh, that are a bit more oppositional to any handling with COVID, any any kind of response to COVID. I'd actually, I'd, I'd agree with Ed, though, um, in relation to the kind of ongoing optimism ar- around COVID. I'm not really sure how valuable it is. I kind of think of uh, Mark Pollock, you know, the kind of motivational speaker who's blind and, and in a wheelchair. And... I remember when, when I was rowing, he used to give these speeches and he used to always talk about facts rather than optimism being an important determinant of how you need to deal with situations. And obviously he has overcome enormous hurdles himself, personally speaking. And I think that kind of dealing with the facts at hand rather than kind of blind optimism, blind optimism, I think, works for a little uh, small period of time. But look, if if the data isn't good, I, th- I kind of think the public need to to be the the politicians need to be quite clear with the public on that sort of thing. But is it, do you think that there is a greater public willingness now to put up with certain levels of covid in the community which mean higher levels of hospitalization ergo higher levels ultimately of of deaths in the way that there wasn't maybe a year ago a year and a half ago in the way that we, there kind of is in the UK that we see, there's just a much greater tolerance for, uh, you know, a, a certain level of cases, hospitalizations, deaths than there is here. Yeah, I think that's dependent on the data. So, you know, in the first wave in the UK, it was horrific, you know, and they, they still had that inquiry and Boris Johnson's support completely fell as a result of that. Um the difference between the first wave and, and this wave is, in fact, that the, the hospitalizations and deaths are, are significantly lower. You know, I mean, relative to the amount of restrictions that were required in that first wave, relative to now, which is basically don't go to nightclubs, uh, it's it's a it's a different it's a different thing. But that doesn't mean that in the future, given that Omicron can avoid you know immunity and, and that sort of stuff, it doesn't mean that in the future that we won't end up with a situation 
uh, that is similar to the first wave. Who knows what 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 genuinely is is going to happen in the future? Pat, could I just on that? So, like, I mean, one of the kind of truisms about the pandemic is that Ireland has had way more restrictions than probably anywhere else in Europe. Uh, has had a reasonably good performance on kind of you know deaths. Uh, but has, you know, had high levels of infections throughout, notwithstanding the, the, the restrictions. I think that's been the kind of, they've been the kind of broad characteristics of the, of the pandemic in Ireland. And then there's always been a kind of a majority, uh, of public support for the restrictions. Uh, I think just picking up on what Kevin said, I think what's the, the kind of cleavage that's opening up now, and I think will open up more in 22, is between younger people, uh, who are just becoming, I think, tired and impatient, uh, of the restrictions. And then older people who are broadly on board uh, with 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 ongoing restrictions as we kind of you know live with COVID to use your phrase, uh, and I think part of the issue there is they look elsewhere. I mean they look you know young people here look at London, and they kind of go you know I could have been clubbing on New Year's Eve if I was in London, and and here I was turfed out of the pub at eight o'clock in the evening, you know, and yet you know the situation in London doesn't appear to be all that much worse in terms of hospitals and things like that. Um, so I think that will be a dynamic definitely uh, moving into. Uh, 2022, I think there will be more of a skew in terms of how people view restrictions and the kind of support or lack thereof for restrictions. I think it'll be generational. Uh, and I think the interesting question for politics then is, you know, what the opposition does about that. Because if you look at the support for the various political parties, I mean, Sinn Féin are miles ahead among younger people. Uh, if Sinn Féin wanted to weaponize that uh, generational schism that's opening up over restrictions, you know, they could profit very, very significantly from it politically. That would require them, though, to take a very clear position in opposition to government policy, which so far they've kind of flirted with, but haven't haven't really done so. And that's the really interesting question, I think, about how the pandemic plays out politically, uh, you know, uh, in 2022. Does the opposition start to really diverge from the government uh, in a kind of coherent way rather than in a kind of a salami slicey way where they're against this little thing or that little thing, but in a kind of more coherent, you know, broad approach to the management of, of the pandemic. You do see certainly in terms of like public support and opposition to the measures that are being introduced, an emerging dynamic where uh, Fianna Fáil supporters in particular are becoming the most in favour of the restrictions. And I think that's why... Is, is that just because they're older though? They are older, but, but it wasn't the case uh, earlier on in the pandemic. I think as Fianna Fáil have become more central to the people standing over the decisions that are being made and Fine Gael have, is, are a little bit more of a kind of bystanders in those decisions, you know, those, those decisions being presented by the Taoiseach, Michael Martin, by the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, and they're standing behind them uh, a little bit more so than I think Fine Gael are. And I think they're benefiting from that because there is a substantial, as I mentioned, proportion of the population that are in favour of these restrictions. So I think part of the reason why... Fianna Fáil are actually benefiting from this current arrangement. You've seen Fianna Fáil increase in support over the last couple of months uh, relative to Fine Gael is because they are behind those government decisions far more than Fine Gael are. And they're benefiting from that relevance and that dynamic, I think, as well. Ed, Ed has, has Leo Varadkar in recent months been trying to create just a little bit of distance between him and those and the decisions on restrictions? Just a crack of daylight. Yeah, I mean, if you did a thought experiment and you thought, what would Fine Gael, uh, under Leo Varadkar's leadership, what would their position be on COVID restrictions if they were in opposition? Uh, and they would probably take a more, uh, you know, uh, liberal position, I guess. They, they would probably be in favour of fewer restrictions or they would be favour 
you know, in favor of a much more evidence-based approach in terms of do restrictions work or do they not work, you know, or, you know, they would be posing questions like if we have so many restrictions here, how come the, you know, the numbers are not really particularly any better than in the North or in the UK? So I, I think instinctively they would take that position. Of course, the difficulty they have is that they're in a coalition with Fianna Fáil and the Greens, which is imposing the toughest restrictions in Europe. So uh, to the extent that, you know, Leo Varadkar is, you know, his instincts are different. He has to, I guess, mask that a little bit. But yeah, I think perhaps that has been happening a little bit in recent years. And I mean, some of the or sorry, recent months and some of the comments he's made, for example, that, you know, when the numbers get good, we should open up much more aggressively. I think they're a testament to that. So I think that's another dynamic that will play out uh, in 2022. I think intra-coalition, within the coalition, you may see slightly different perspectives or approaches to the pandemic with Fine Gael taking a more liberal approach. Uh, Fianna Fáil, as Kevin said, taking a much more cautious kind of, you know, uh, paternalistic public health first approach. Um, and uh, and then how that plays out in terms of how the opposition reacts to it. And does Sinn Féin kind of use the opportunity of a clear generational schism opening up uh, on, you know, restrictions to kind of copper fasten its support among younger people uh, and take a distinctive position uh, on the management of the pandemic. They're all, they're all really interesting questions. I want to talk specifically about Sinn Féin uh, shortly, but first of all, let's let's get away from COVID, but stick with that Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael internal dynamic within the uh, the government, because I think this is going to be one of the things that uh, occupies us all increasingly as the year goes on, and that is the date in uh, in in late 2022, the 15th of December, I think it is when the Taoiseach's office is handed over, swapped between Fianna Fáil and, uh, and, and Fianna Gael. Now, you know, we all know the way politics works. That's not going to be something that we all just wake up on the 15th of December and say, oh, changeover day is here. It's going to be something that feeds into the dynamics of politics and the daily currency of politics in the months running up to that. Um, Kevin, how do you think that's going to play out? Okay, so I, I think one needs to look at why Fianna Fáil have increased just in the background of this to explain why I think relevance is so central to this this whole thing and, and major and minor coalition partners is that when Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael went to the government, Fianna Fáil initially have the Taoiseach, the Minister for Housing and the Minister for Health. They're basically dominating the main policy issues. They are more visible and more relevant from from. The public's perspective. I think that has benefited them enormously. And if you go forward and then view things from the perspective of what's going to happen in the future, if Fianna Fáil are then, you know, have the Taunish's position, maybe a change of ministerial positions and lose that relevance, invariably support for Fianna Fáil is going to decline. So I think Fianna Fáil has three options. Uh, either go for the full term, try to pull down the government immediately after the changeover, or try to pull down the government at some point before this changeover. I mean, it's a deal, but the deal is only as important as the, the length of this government. So it's 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 a deal in paper only, really. And I think if the party allows it to go to the full term, invariably, you know, you'd assume that it's going to lose support. If it decides to pull down the government after the changeover, immediately after, it does so from the perspective of this kind of false opposition party, which clearly isn't benefiting Fine Gael right now because they're the kind of false opposition party within the government in relation to the restrictions. It doesn't really benefit, I think, a coalition partner 
to be opposing the government's position. I think that's why minor coalition partners do relatively poorly. So I think arguably that the the most optimal, the most strategic uh, decision for Fianna Fáil to make would be to actually pull down the government uh, sooner rather than later. Now, whether they will do so or not, I, I, I don't know. I mean, as you get closer and closer to that particular date of the changeover, I'm sure, as I'm sure Ed will probably be able to clarify. But when civil servants know that ministers are going to change, that they know the Taoiseach is going to change, uh, Fianna Fáil will start to lose relevance even before that actual date occurs. So... I think I think it's a very important existential decision for Fianna Fáil as to what they need to do in relation to this changeover and strategically how to navigate it. And and it's definitely going to be a feature, as you say, uh, for the, for the rest of the year. Ed, I mean, my view would be that that would be pulling down the coalition for its own perceived political ends would be a strategy, the Cunningham strategy, let us call it, would be fraught with risk for for uh, for Fianna Fáil. But, uh, but it is certainly something that is likely to be discussed, canvassed in certain quarters in Fianna Fáil anyway. But it's also what Fianna Fáil does is, uh, is a question that is indistinguishable from the question of who leads Fianna Fáil, isn't it? I, I, I suspect that over the course of this year in 2022, we're going to be talking about Fianna Fáil a lot. Yeah. Uh, what Fianna Fáil does is, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, you kind of distinguish it from who leads Fianna Fáil and then what Fianna Fáil is for, which is actually probably the kind of, the kind of, the key question, really. It's a harder question, isn't it, for everyone? Harder question, yeah. And it hasn't really been resolved since, you know, the fracturing of our politics uh, from kind of, you know, 28 and the financial crisis onwards. Uh, but I think it will probably be, it come into clearer view uh, during the course of 22 uh, and after this uh, day of uh, of uh, poetry, uh, as it's been described, of December the 15th when the changeover um, ha- happens, if, if it does happen. I mean, I think Kevin's right to an extent uh, about Fianna Fáil. It definitely has recovered. It's been some recovery in the polls, but I mean, you know, it's still rooted at around 20%, right? It's around, it's low 20s. And just, just to clarify, you know, at the end of sort of around autumn 2020, Fianna Fáil was down around 13 or 14%. Some yeah. polls, I think, gave it to yeah. 12%. It wasn't because Fianna Fáil weren't doing anything particularly bad or anything. It was just because the party wasn't relevant to the the national discourse was, do you support the government? Okay, you support Fine Gael because they, they are the government, basically. And minor coalition partners decline for a very specific reason. It's because they're just not relevant. Yeah. No, I think, I think the point about relevance is very well, well argued and well made. Uh, and I suppose the, 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 the kind of corollary of that is then, you know, when this change ever happens, if it does happen, uh, and Leo Varadkar, you know, reassumes the office of Taoiseach, does that make Fine Gael then more relevant? And is that a boon to Fine Gael support uh, in the kind of, you know, second half of the government's existence in the lead up to the election? That, that's got to be, sorry to interrupt, but that's got to be Varadkar's strategy, right? That has, that, has to, that has to be the strategy. And I think you've written about this, Pat. He, he's in a rare position of having kind of a second chance uh, in politics. You know, very few people get uh, a second chance uh, like the one he's about to get. Uh, uh, if he does get it, uh, and that and that changeover does happen, um, and you know the question then is, what does he do with it, and how does he make you know Fine Gael more relevant uh, to use Kevin, Kevin's analysis, and then build support for Fine Gael in the second half of the government in the lead up to the election? The, the, the question for Fine Gael is really kind of confounding because you know we all saw what happened in February 2020. You know they did uh, very badly, they had a terrible election, and and then right off the bat. 
you know, when the pandemic hit, you know, there was a reset in support for Fine Gael. I mean, you know, there was this kind of rally around the flag effect, whatever you want to call it. But I think by the summer uh, of 2020, when the government was formed, Fine Gael was in about 35%. And then it's been a precipitous drop, a percentage point every month uh, since then. Uh, and for very well canvassed reasons, you know, around housing, uh, around various other, you know, uh, things where which have skewed on kind of very much de- demographic lines. And, you know, sh- you know, Sinn Féin support has, has, has gone up. So, how does he turn it around? Um, I guess relevance uh, is one thing, but I'm a little bit sceptical about uh, his ability to carry this off because all governments really get, the public decides about all governments pretty much halfway through. You know, they kind of make their mind up about governments. It's very hard for governments to turn things around uh, halfway through the term, irrespective of how significant uh, the change is in terms of office or leadership or that kind of thing. Is is that is that possibly, just, just, just to probe that, point for a second. Is that possibly because governments just lose momentum and get bogged down in the second half of their term? And in a way, if, if that's true, then the real challenge for this government is to, to reinvent itself at the halfway mark. Yeah, no, no, completely. But, 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 but why, why have governments not been able to do that in the past? Because it's really, really hard to reinvent yourself halfway through. There's a few, you know, there's a few dynamics at play here. I mean, in the second half of this government's uh, office, you know, even if COVID is still going on in the background, the kind of COVID bills will come due. You know, they, they kind of will. I mean, the, the, the massive expansion in this, in the size of the state, uh, and the massive expansion in the provision of public services, uh, and all that stuff, you know, there will have to be a reckoning about it, or at least a discussion about a reckoning on it. So that'll limit, you know, the government's ability to do the things that Leave Record would probably like to do, which would be to do tax cuts for the middle class or, you know, various other things like that. This is a real, it's a real tank trap. For the government in the second half of its of, of of its life, you know, with withdrawal of the COVID subsidies, closure of businesses that have been kept on 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 life support, Kevin. I mean, how does that play out, right? With the with with the public, do you think? Do you think public are doing well? Of course, you know, of course, we have to cut some areas of public spending from their pandemic era highs. Uh, or does it say, oh, this is the return of austerity, you know, and we know how that, we know how that worked. I, I think, you know, we asked a question before asking whether financial supports for staff should be reintroduced in that same December poll. 82% said yes. So, I mean, there's a lot of support for those. I think what's, what's bubbling underneath the surface is, I mean, it's hard to predict the next issue. I think uh, in a podcast we did before the last election, we were talking about manifestos and how ridiculous they were because they were five-year projections and, and all this sort of stuff, and I guess how right we were back then. But I think it's it's very Needless difficult to, to predict the, the future, more generally speaking. But one of the things that is clearly bubbling underneath the surface, it is now, inter- like I ask this question every month, which is, what open? it's an open-ended question, what do you think is the most important issue? And they can answer anything. And, and broadly speaking, outside of COVID, housing is basically number one. But what has happened, I noticed in the last two months, is that cost of living is now increasing as an issue. And it's it's now very clearly there as a significant issue. Everything else is usually kind of like... You, 
for example, the United Ireland is like one out of a thousand people will mention that. But cost of living, you're talking about ninety percent of, or sorry, nine percent of the public will mention that as a significant their number one issue, notwithstanding the other possibilities of COVID and housing. Which so, is a which is a neat, if accidental, segue into what I want to talk about next, which is the rise of Sinn Fein that we've seen, and to what extent? Do, I mean, do you think, Kevin, that 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 rise will continue? throughout 2022 and how solid is it um i mean i i I wrote a piece at the weekend said this was the kind of key challenge for mary lou mcdonald to transform some of that some of that or or a chunk of that great wave of support that she has got into nailed down votes for the next general election which is a different which is a different thing yeah i mean it's very clear that the support for Sinn Féin isn't a tacit approval of anything that Sinn Féin itself has done i mean when you ask people why they're voting for Sinn Féin the number one reasons are change or change from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. it's a it's a vote that is pretty much in opposition to Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, which is obviously to their benefit um because it means that you know they they don't have to carry out they don't have to fulfill any promises that they're making and i think that's an important part of the whole thing i think that Sinn Féin's vote is essentially something that needs to like it, it, the other the other aspect of this is that and like how guaranteed are Sinn Féin that they're going to carry this vote through to the next election i think this is the point that you're trying to make and we have asked before about how certain people are about the party that they support whether they're going to actually vote for that particular party in the next general election. And it is true that Sinn Féin has the, has the highest percentage of people within their bloc that are saying that they are going to vote for Sinn Féin in the next election. The, the kind of the soft vote, if there is a soft vote out there within the political system, is all within the smaller parties. People who vote for small, support smaller parties are much more likely to move around. Notwithstanding all of that, there's a, there's a volatility in elections uh, that we've observed over the last decade or so uh, that is quite clear in that people are moving around quite a lot uh, when it comes to elections, particularly when the election itself is called. So there's no absolute guarantee that Sinn Féin will carry it off because you can't be certain of anything in, in, in elections these days. But... Um, but yeah, I think I think if if you were to guess, I think Sinn Fein have a pretty solid uh, solid advantage there, and it isn't because of Mary Lou Macdonald. Her opinion approval ratings are basically on a par with Leo Varadkar and um, Michal Martin. They're not; she's not significantly ahead of these people. If she was driving that kind of growth in in Sinn Fein, she would be significantly ahead of uh, Michal Martin and Leo Varadkar. But it is just they are getting this vote because uh, of. People being tired of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. I think that's 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 what's happening basically. But that that dynamic is unlikely to disappear. No, it's well. I mean, it's unlikely to disappear. But there are weaknesses in the Sinn Fein vote from the left and from the right. There are people that support Sinn Fein that are very left wing, basically. Um, and on some issues, such as carbon tax and um, uh, property taxes, Sinn Fein doesn't really look very changey. It looks very much like old Fianna Fáil, you might say. They're kind of policies of the 1990s, 1980s, 1970s, perhaps Fianna Fáil, in fact. They were reasonably popular then, though. Yeah, but, you know, not particularly popular among the left today, is is the point, I guess. And there is this kind of emerging left wing in Ireland, and that's developed over the last uh, 40 years, I think. And, and property taxes uh, are, are, you know, 
aren't popular with people who own homes, but obviously we have this growing proportion of the population who are renters, who are very upset with the status quo, with the government. I mean, one of the dynamics of 2020, 2021 was the steady decline in support among renters for the two governing parties. And that my latest estimates were something like they only had around 20% of the vote. Collectively, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and the Greens were only on around 20% uh, among those that were renters. So it's just this steady decline uh, in support among that particular demographic. And obviously, housing is, is as I said, you know, still the biggest issues outside COVID. So. Ed, you're, you're a, a student of the, uh, of the left in broad sense. Uh, is Sinn Féin kind of creating this new left in Irish politics or, or is it just riding on the wave of a shift to the left that has been happening for 10, 15 years now? I think it's like I think it's a bit of both, um, to be to be honest with you. And I think within Sinn Féin, there are certain kind of contradictions uh, around 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 this. Um, but in a way, I'm not sure if it entirely matters that much, uh, because I think kind of Kevin's hit the nail on the head, which is. The Sinn Féin vote is really all about uh, a dislike or an opposition to what is broadly called FFG, uh, you know, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Uh, and really, there's an awful lot of people who who identify uh, as that. Um, and Sinn Féin is kind of hoovering them up. And actually, paradoxically, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the vote is really hinging on change rather than, say, on things like the leadership of Sinn Féin, which is just not a relevant factor in support for Sinn Féin or Sinn Féin's policies, actually gives Sinn Féin the flexibility to, you know, be quite uh, moderate uh, in many of its policies. So for all the talk about Sinn Féin being, you know, very left or very radical, when you actually drill into its policy platform to the extent that there are policies, they're not really all that different from what the government is doing. I mean, they're talking about taxing pretty well off people a tiny little bit more. Uh, they're talking about spending a couple of billion more on housing, but, you know, uh, given how much the government is spending on housing, is that really going to, you know, make a huge difference? I'm not so sure. They're talking about some punitive, you know, pounds of flesh kind of things for the for the left, you know, kind of cracking down on investment funds and, you know, not allowing multinational executives to get extraordinary tax breaks. But they're really more symbolic things. So, but if you actually look at their policy platform, it's actually pretty, you know. The advent of Sinn Féin in government will not revolutionise the state. It may revolutionise the state in a constitutional sense. Uh, and I think that's maybe where uh, there's a difference. But it will not ra- uh, radicalise the economic policy of the state because the economic policy of the state is very much set by the kind of constraints the state faces by being small and not having any natural resources and being dep- dependent on, on FDI. And if you want kind of proof of that, look at the debate around corporate tax. I mean, when Pascal Donoghue was away, negotiating, you know, a massive change in corporate tax, which, you know, I think will probably protect Ireland's economic model. Sinn Féin was calling for the 12.5% rate to be retained. Um, If that is so, though, if you're right about that, that actually the Sinn Féin offering will be in substance not a radical change uh, once it's translated into day-to-day government policy, might that be kind of entirely in tune with the mood of the the country that wants change but might be wary of radical change? I I I absolutely think so. Yeah, I I I do think so. I don't think there's any 
real demand for radical uh, economic change uh, in the country. I think what there is... Uh, well, I mean, there is, there is, but it's significantly a minority viewpoint, I think. It depends on what you mean by economic change. Is, is, is it a change in the kind of the growth model of the country that we would just, you know, instead of having multinational companies, you have organic farms? Or, or is, it, is, it, is it actually in a dis- distribution of the fruits of growth? Uh, and the Sinn Féin project is all about just a different form of distributing the fruits of growth. In other words, you know, using the golden goose uh, and letting the golden goose continue to lay the golden eggs of FDI and, and whatever else, but just distributing them in a slightly different way to how they're distributed at the moment. And that means giving, you know, more uh, money to housing, you know, spending money on health, like slight, slightly differently, things like that. But it's not it's not interfering with the kind of it's not seeking to kind of crack the code of the Irish economy. You know, I mean, the multinationals, Google, Facebook can you know, sleep easy uh, at the prospect of the Sinn Féin government because it's not going to lay a finger on them. Uh, in fact, it might even be more friendly towards them uh, than the current government, if that were possible, because it will want the resources that they deliver in order to pursue its kind of plan of moderate uh, redistribution. So I, 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 I think that's in tune with what the country wants. I mean, when people talk about the country going left, I think what they mean is that the country's gone more social democratic. Uh, and what people want now and expect now is that the state will be more involved in areas where hitherto the Irish state, uh, which is kind of different from states throughout Europe, uh, have been involved in. So it wants the state more involved in health. It wants the state more involved in housing. Uh, and uh, it, 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 it wants that to happen and it kind of feels it's kind of overdue. And I think that's really what Sinn Féin is offering rather than uh, a radical departure. The most important thing for Sinn Féin, Kevin, in the first half of the year, uh, at least, will not be what's happening uh, in the South, I think. It'll be the elections uh, in, uh, in, in the North. Um, there is the prospect of uh, Sinn Féin being the largest party in the Assembly and therefore, as of by right, under the Good Friday Agreement, occupying the First Minister's role. What, what, what's your view on that? And secondly, how does that play into politics in this state? Um, so, in the, so I think that is possibly quite likely uh, and, and partly that is because of a disarray within unionism. It isn't as clear as had been in previous elections which unionist party is the best or the most likely to prevent a Sinn Féin first minister. That has previously been the, one of the DUP's great strengths in that it has been able to rally a, an array of unionists of different persuasions into their camp to, to ensure that Sinn Féin doesn't get the first minister position. And it's an important thing to realise when we look at Northern Ireland, we see Sinn Féin and the DUP doing relatively well these days because beneath the surface, what is happening in Northern Ireland over the past 10, 15 years is that Rather than, I mean, there's a lot of talk around the kind of demographic inevitability in Northern Ireland and the fact that Catholics will outnumber Protestants in less census, census. But while that is happening at a very slow pace, the thing that's happening much quicker is that this middle ground is opening up uh, quite substantially. And in fact, it's much more pragmatic and lots of it is younger and therefore unlikely to like the social policies of the DUP. Um, that, is, that is definitely true. The Alliance Party um, uh, plus the Greens are polling around 20%. In the most recent local, general and European elections, they've increased their vote share by somewhere between 6 and 12% in each of those elections. So it is inevitable that they will increase in the Assembly election 
this year. And I think that is probably the most important and interesting dynamic because while Sinn Féin might actually get the first minister position, they might do so on a reduced vote share at the next election. They might, they might not care, though, if they got the first minister's office. Ed? No, they may, they may not care. And I, I, mean, I think just the mere fact of them having that uh, will, will be a very significant political moment um, because it'll just be something new that hasn't happened before. Uh, and it will therefore be a kind of a, you know, a, symbolically a huge departure irrespective of what, you know, that person uh, can achieve and, and particularly how the, uh, the protocol uh, plays out uh, in the context of kind of Northern, Northern Irish politics uh, in, in, in the year ahead. I just think the mere fact of Sinn Féin being the first minister uh, in the executive, uh, having the first minister in the exec- executive will just be very, very significant. It, it also it, it also adds to their momentum in the South, doesn't it? Yeah, it shows that they are, you know, they are fit, you know, if if they're fit to be, you know, to lead the government in the North, then 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 the arguments about them not being fit to lead the government in the South are just harder, you know, harder, harder to make. And it, and it makes it much harder for the kind of parties of government to make them, because in a way they're saying, you know, it's OK, uh, 100 miles up the road for Sinn Féin to be in government and we support that. But, you know, they're 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 unfit for government. Uh, down here, and I think this poses a big uh, challenge to the government parties. How how do they confront Sinn Fein uh, in the year ahead and in the period up to the next election? Like traditionally, the kind of playbook has been they're not fit for office because of the past, and their economic policies are you know crazy and they'll drive investment away. Uh, you know they can keep on talking about the past until the cows come home, but it's it's entirely electorally non-salient. There's just no point in doing it. So. I mean, if they want to do it and a certain kind of, you know, uh, people in the media want to do it, they can continue to do it and they may have very good reasons for doing it. But it has no uh, electoral significance. Uh, and so I think, therefore, it's a dead end for the government parties. The economy, uh, I think, is more significant. I think the kind of seeding of the economic question to Sinn Féin uh, is a big problem for the government parties. Because if you look at government economic policy in response to the pandemic and housing, things like that, it really is converging with that of Sinn Féin. So it's very hard when the government is broadly pursuing, you know, economic and social policies that are akin to Sinn Féin's to then turn around and say, well, but if Sinn Féin were in pursuing similar policies, that would be a disaster. It's just not, uh, it just lacks credibility. So I think it's really, di- I think it's really difficult. Uh, in a way, actually, maybe Sinn Féin being in government in the North for a few years before uh, the general election here may actually be a boon to the uh, to the government parties because if Sinn Féin is incompetent in government, which it could well be, uh, they will at least have that to point to. Uh, the problem is always that people in the South really don't pay very much attention to what happens in the North. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a somewhat harder case to make. But actually Sinn Féin being in government, leading a government with the kind of you know, visibility uh, that, 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 that means for their kind of record in government, that may be an opening for the, the government parties. But the past, I think, uh, and economic policy really are very, very difficult for them to kind of gain say Sinn Féin on now. Okay, look, we're, 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 sorry, Kevin, but we're, we're, we're almost out of time, but I, I just want to, for the couple of minutes that we have left, to briefly focus on international uh, affairs. We will all be fixated with, uh, with Boris, I guess, for the, uh, for, for the year to come, but there's much, you know, there's other things that will happen this year as well, not least in, in, in France with this presidential election, which will be, you know, potentially epoch making for the, uh, for the EU. Uh, I think, Kevin, what, one, one international event or trend that you'll be looking out for this year? 
One trend. Uh, I'll I'll skittle, I'll I'll run through what I think could. I mean, in the UK, Boris, he could easily recover, and the Tory party support is in, intrinsically linked with support for Boris Johnson. The local elections will be quite interesting there. A lot of elections happening in April, May. Macron, I think, will probably hold on, even though Valerie Pécresse is uh, threatening. I, I think that there's enough support from the left to actually ensure he gets over the line. I think Bolsonaro in October looks like he's not going to get re-elected as a consequence of his handling of COVID primarily. There was an inquiry there um, uh, that has really damaged his support. I think um, one other election which is pretty important for democracy is uh, the Hungarian election, which is also in kind of uh, April, May. Uh, And Viktor Orban is likely to hold on against the United Opposition, which is basically six political parties joining together to try to um, hold on to democracy in Hungary. And uh, I don't know if they're going to succeed in doing so. Obviously, there's the US elections. Um, The Democrats uh, don't think they're going to hold on to the House. They, They hold the Senate by basically a margin of zero. Um, and they might hold on, but it would be, it'd be, a, big, it'd be a big ask as well. I mean, it would be quite interesting because all the states that are up for re-election are all the kind of really marginal ones. So, Which, which means, of course, that Joe Biden has a couple of months to rescue his domestic agenda because, uh, yeah, yeah. Ed, sorry, your, your trends or events to look out for this year. Internationally, yeah, I mean, kind of similar to uh, kind of similar to Kevin. I mean, I think slightly more broadly, I think within the EU, uh, we're going to see a really big debate on fiscal policy and on the future of kind of you know the potential for joint fiscal policy and joint debt and that kind of thing. The stuff that was put in place um, during the pandemic in 2020 when the Germans uh, conceded to have these recovery funds that would involve joint borrowing. Um, you know, with the advent of the kind of Schultz government in Germany and the potential for Macron to to hang on and perhaps Draghi to continue to be Italian prime minister. I think that's a new axis towards broader fiscal integration uh, within the EU. Um, and that could be significant. It could come slowly, but I think it'd be a big debate in the EU uh, in in twenty in 2022. Um, I think the other thing uh, is Brexit. I mean, It'll be very interesting to see if um, Boris putting one of his chief leadership rivals in Liz Truss in to uh, handle the Brexit brief or to manage Brexit will lead to uh, a kind of a frostier uh, approach uh, to Brexit than uh, than we've seen to date, uh, despite the disappearance of Mr. Frost. Lord Frost to you. Uh, the greatest frost uh, since the Great Frost of 1704, I think, uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, which wants its title back, I think. But uh, whether Miss Truss uh, decides to uh, pursue the kind of quite fallow path that Lord Frost pursued, which really didn't get him anywhere, uh, or she is more pragmatic uh, with an eye to the leadership uh, and kind of getting Brexit done, part two or part three or whatever part of getting Brexit done this is, uh, will be a very interesting question. Um, I think it's dangerous uh, because it will obviously impact on the elections in the north. So I think the Irish government will be very keen to get that business done uh, by the end of February. And I think Simon Coveney was talking about that over Christmas Um so I think that'll continue to be a drag uh, on politics here, politics in the UK, politics in the North uh, throughout 2022.
Well, that much to ponder and uh, indeed to look forward to. And uh, we will be here on a weekly and sometimes more twice-weekly basis to discuss and winbag uh, about uh, it all. But for now, thanks for listening. My thanks to Kevin Cunningham and to Ed Brophy, to Declan Conlon, our producer, and to JJ Vernon on sound. And we will talk to you next week. 